I think it's high time for us to kind of slow down as Christians in an age that wants us to go faster, 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 to slow down and ask some of these big, hard questions, because that's going to directly inform how we move forward in our digital age. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. My name is Benjamin Quinn. And I'm Nathaniel Williams. Today on Christ and Culture Podcast, we will talk with Jason Thacker on following Christ in a digital age. We recorded on Zoom, so the quality is a little bit shaky, but I think it's well worth your time. After that, we'll have another edition of our segment on my bookshelf. But first, it's time for our new segment called Headlines, in which we look at some aspect of the headlines, like news, sports, pop culture, or business, from a Christian perspective. And in today's edition of Headlines, let's talk about the Queen. To talk to us about the Queen today, we have the good Dr. Christy Thornton. Dr. Thornton, introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Christy Thornton. In my normal life, I help oversee a couple of degree programs at Southeastern and teach theology-related things. But in my less-than-normal life, I'm a bit of a lover of the Queen. (laughs) So tell us about the Queen. Of course, we're all continuing to mourn the loss of a beloved Queen Elizabeth II. But tell us, you wrote a, a blog for us on our CFC blog just last week in light of the Queen's passing. Just give us your quick thoughts on why we should really reflect deeply and what we should reflect on relative to the Queen. Yeah, so there's no one who's quite like the Queen, like, ever. Now, that's kind of true for each of us, but there's some things about her life that make her very fascinating. So I'm not particularly a royalist. I, like, couldn't be more of an American the way I think about American government, separation of church and state, all of those things. But the Queen's so interesting that she kind of drew me in, and the more I read and the more I read, the more interesting she became. So the queen became queen in 1952 when her father died, and she was only 25. She had two toddlers. She didn't expect to become queen that early, and that makes her really unique in, like, monarchy ways. And then we start overlaying that with our own kind of societal consciousness. Like, her first prime minister is Winston Churchill, which for us feels like forever forever ago. ago, yeah. Yeah, forever ago. But he taught her how to be a monarch. And then her last duty was to appoint her fifth, a uh, 15th prime minister as Liz Truss, which is kind of fun that her like final duty as a monarch is and something significant. And that broke the record, right? That was the, her, her appointing the 15th was the record <laughs> for the most prime ministers appointed by a monarch. Yeah. I mean, she has all the records for all of them. <laughs> for like, all I the mean, things. Like, <laughs> like all, all the records for all of the things. And then she's just such a constant force kind of throughout that. And even the way she's engaging with the United States, she met 13 of mm-hmm. our presidents as well. And there's something kind of phenomenal about that. So the queen also seemed to have a vibrant faith. Tell us about the queen's faith. Yeah, so I'm always a bit of a skeptic for things like this. So for people who are like, well, you know that she's really a Christian. And I'm like, nah, prove it. But the more I read, the more it seemed reasonable to believe that she really was. So she holds these positions as the defender of the faith or the head of the Church of England. But I always wondered whether that was merely ceremonial. The more I read, both in her own words and the people who knew her well, the more real it seemed to for her. So you could look at her Christmas speeches. So for those of you who don't know, the British monarch since King George V in the 1930s gives a speech every Christmas day to the Commonwealth. 
And so in her Christmas speeches, she makes these really clear statements of personal faith about Christ being her light and her life and her rock and the one who steadies her. She doesn't have to say that. She mm-hmm. says it because she says it because it's true. And then her ministers, so everyone at every kind of royal place of residence, there's always a chapel that's nearby. And all of them comment about how she's there every week and she participates in the worship and they go and visit her and do pastoral things and they have spiritual conversations with her. So I was listening to one of the parish minister outside Balmoral, which is where she passed away in Scotland, who spoke about how he asked her what her favorite Christian song was, like, what's your favorite hymn? And she said, you know, I don't know, but my fondest memories of Christian hymns were when my dad used to sing hymns to me as a kid on my bedside. Hmm. And so there's something about this faith being passed on from her dad, and then her mom would pray every night, and her kind of seedbed of her faith begins because she has a faithful family and a faithful parents that kind of raise her up. And they were never, none of them were intended to be monarchs. And so mm. there's something, they're kind of like behind the scenes Christians and, yeah. then, and then accidentally kind of become monarchs because of the abdication of his older brother. So what is one thing that we might take away from her life? Yeah, so she's a queen, but she always saw herself as a servant, both to the king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and also to her people. And that's what people have commented on over and over again. When she's 21, she makes this statement about may her whole life, whether it's long or short, be devoted to your service. And she like really does it. And it seems really clear from even strangers who met her that they always talk about how she was so interested in them. She was disarming and she was kind. And so here we have this woman who has, she's probably the most famous woman in the world, literally, like not hyperbotically, is literally the most uh, famous person in the world who sees herself in humility and service to others. And that's a really helpful model for Christians who Mm. in our hearts always kind of aspire for fame or fortune or power. And she had all of those things, but she wore them lightly and Mm. saw herself as a servant. And Mm. that's a helpful example for us. Our world and our lives are saturated with technology. And how are those technologies shaping us? We use technology, but are we the ones being used? It's a great question, Dr. Keith Lee. Here to discuss today with us is Jason Thacker. Jason is a friend to Southeastern and to our center, but also is chair of research in technology ethics at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission where he also leads the ERLC Research Institute and teaches at Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky. Jason, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, glad to join you guys. So Jason, are we being used? I think we are uh, in many ways. A lot of times when I talk about kind of conversations around technology, I think we default to say, is technology good or is it bad? And we want to know, and is it just good and maybe some people use it in bad ways or is it bad and maybe people can redeem it and use it in some good ways. But I think that kind of misses the question. It's not really is technology good or bad, but it's also not neutral. And so I think when we step back and take kind of a more biblical view of technology, how it's forming and shaping us as people, we can in many ways say, yeah, we are being used. We are being formed and shaped as we're utilizing these tools. And I think it's high time for Christians in the church to kind of step back and ask some of these big questions of what is technology? What is it doing to us? And I think that'll help us to faithfully follow Christ in our digital age. 
I know for the families listening to our podcast and those who have children, there's a great concern about what are the best ways and the wise ways to uh, deal with technology in the home. So talk to us about the need for wisdom in how we use our technology. What does that look like? Yeah, and I think that's really the key question. I think a lot of times when we talk about technology, and understandably, we want kind of like a checklist. We want a five steps to fix your digital life or five steps to write your relationship with technology. And there are a lot of helpful tips and tricks, and there are a lot of helpful books on those ideas. And I reference a few of them in my book. But what I wanted to do was kind of step back and take a bigger picture. And I think that's one of the ways that we cultivate wisdom in the digital age is really understanding what's going on. And so for me, kind of the story of the book was I was actually reading through the Proverbs, something that was kind of inculcated early on in my time in seminary. I had a professor, Dr. Tevon Walker, uh, who told us, I want you in this pastoral ministry class to read the Proverbs, like I think it was like three or four times in our semester, just over and over and over again. And so I had gotten into habit with that. And it was actually reading the Proverbs that I was kind of struck. It's not just about what we believe, but it's also what we do. In many ways, people talk about that of the relationship of like theology and ethics, our beliefs and our actions. And so that kind of flavored when I was approached about writing a book like this, I said, what is not only what is technology, but how is it forming and shaping not only what we believe, but also what we do? And in many ways, how do we cultivate wisdom then? Because it's not just, is technology all good or all bad? We have to step back and ask some of those bigger questions. And so kind of how we cultivate wisdom, I think, is really understanding what technology is, how it's forming and shaping us. And in particular, maybe are there certain ways in our digital age that we're being formed and shaped? And that's kind of how the approach I take to the book is three of the four chapters are, I think, the three main ways that we're being shaped in a digital age. Um, and so that's when I wanted to kind of step back, ask some of those big questions, because I think that can inform and should inform how we navigate a lot of these tools, especially in our families, especially with our kids, especially as our kids are growing up as what they call digital natives, meaning they don't remember a day before certain technologies. For some of us that are a little older, we do, but our kids don't. And so understanding what technology is, how it's forming and shaping in many ways, their worldview, how they view God, how they view themselves and how they view the world around them, I think is really key as how we cultivate wisdom in a digital age. Yeah, I heard an expression uh, not long ago, and I think I brought it up before that I'd never heard the expression geriatric millennial hmm. uh, and, and that it means, you know, you're talking about someone who's even though they're a millennial, they're old enough to remember uh, when we didn't have the internet. Yeah. There have always been times in our history in which the public discourse took a bad direction. I mean, yeah. I'm thinking about when newspapers in the latter part of the 19th and early part of the 20th century were so powerful. There was what was called yellow journalism and muckraking and public discourse suffered as a result. It seems like we are going through another period like that in which social media has really affected public discourse. And so here now we have all kinds of information available at our fingertips. And yet I think that the level of distrust has never been greater or higher. What's going on? Why is that? Yeah, I think you you bring up a really good observation there. And that's something I try to play out in the book as well. I We're tempted to think in our digital age that all of the problems that we're facing, issues that we're addressing, the tensions in the public square, that somehow these are all new and novel. 
And I think there's two things, especially as we've been talking about this kind of cultivating a habit or kind of posture of wisdom in approaching these questions is one, we have to realize none of these problems are new per se. In many ways, they've always been. It's kind of the problems that we've always addressed as human history uh, throughout human history and in many ways, a result of the fall and obviously sin and our rebellion against God is those tensions, not only with a broken relationship with God, but also with other people. But it's really interesting when you kind of look back, almost every generation thinks that the problems they face are new and novel. But the Bible continually reminds us that we have age-old wisdom to address a lot of these new questions and challenges. So I think at the heart of a lot of the big questions that we're facing today, especially in the public square, especially around technology, are actually not new and novel as much as they're kind of age-old questions being asked in light of new opportunities. So we have more access to information and uh, connectivity than we've ever had in the history of humanity, really at our fingertips. Uh, with our smartphones and smart devices and social media, et cetera. And so in many ways, I think what we do is we just assume all these things are new, but in many ways, they're just seeing our sins and our vices and our rebellion being played out in new mediums to be able to reach new people. But you mentioned something that I think was really key early on is that almost every generation has a new form of technology, whether it was the printing press and how revolutionary the printing press was. I think many of us rightfully understand, you know, the power of the printing press was we spread the Bible around the world. It was translated into uh, countless languages so that people, we saw churches planning, we saw the Protestant Reformation take off. All of these things were amazing. But at the same time, there was also a lot of public discord. There were a lot of nasty and vitriol letters being shared. So in some ways, every kind of period has a piece of technology that kind of exacerbates the sin problem and tendency that we all have, and it kind of magnifies it in its own way. And I think we're seeing that, especially with social media today, is that it in many ways is shaping and forming not only our view of God, the view of ourselves, and especially our view of our neighbor, where we start to treat other people as just simply avatars that we can dunk on with little bits of data or just a random meme or video or whatever, rather than understanding that our neighbors are flesh and blood human beings. And if we're going to take Christ's word seriously, when Matthew 22 verses 37 through 39, that the sum of the law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. Well, that's high time that we're going to have to apply that great ethical commandment to our digital technologies. And that's what I tried to do throughout the book. Jason, this is fantastic. I, I love your allusion to the printing press, because I can only imagine the 16th century uh, comment of, did you see that pamphlet is the equivalent <laughs> of the 21st century? Did you see that tweet? You know, that that same kind of phenomenon in the way that it uh, sometimes malforms communities and people. Yeah, I love your direction on wisdom. This is very much, I mean, I, this is my love language in many ways, Proverbs, wisdom, the whole, that whole approach and having a, a good framework for that. Are you suggesting that we have more knowledge than we've ever had, but we're not actually any wiser? I think that's exactly right. I think what it is, is we were promised. I mean, this is kind of the interesting thing. If you follow the techno- technology industry, even over the last decade or so, When these new technologies come out, whether it's the internet, whether it's social media, especially social media, there were all of these grand promises, access to information, more freedom, human rights are going to flourish, we're going to have great connectivity, we're going to have deeper community with one another. And a lot of ways, those have been fulfilled. So I don't want to, one of the things that I often get critiqued on, um, and I think it's a good critique is to say, well, it seems like you're overly negative about technology. Or it's funny because with my first book, The Age of AI, I was critiqued for being overly positive with technology. And it's, I want to step back and say it's actually neither. 
But it's interesting to me is all of these big grand promises were made. And while some of them were fulfilled or maybe not fully fulfilled, uh, we're also seeing a lot of broken promises where technology simply did not live up to that. And I think it's interesting. Now we go back to social media and I think almost kind of why it's pretty widespread now we would say yeah is technology really helping us do we really have deeper community we see more isolated we see more anxious we see more alone than we've ever experienced in human history at the same time we're more connected and have more information and i think that's a it's a one of the things i try to do in that first chapter is kind of deciding or talking about the nature of wisdom in a digital age is say just because you have head knowledge just because you have certain beliefs doesn't mean or just information per se doesn't mean that you're any wiser and i think that's the beauty that you see throughout the wisdom literature especially uh, in proverbs where you're speaking of these big truths about god but there's also these corresponding actions and for me as an ethicist, I sit back and say, you know, there's a beauty here between the relationship of theology and ethics. Yeah. We can know a lot of things, true beliefs, but our beliefs inform our actions, but also our actions reveal our true beliefs. So yeah. what you do is actually revealing what you truly believe. And so if we see these two as kind of these inextricably linked relationship of theology and ethics, our belief and our action, to me, that's the way of wisdom. And you see that model throughout the Proverbs. And that's one of the reasons I try to open each chapter with a Proverbs or a, uh, a verse from Ecclesiastes, because it's, it's cultivating that kind of biblical worldview, that biblical way of viewing the entire world that includes our beliefs and our actions. Uh, but I think you're exactly right. I think we have more information than we've ever had, but often we don't act upon those things and it doesn't actually change how we interact with one another, how we see God, see ourselves and see the world around us. And I think it's high time for us to kind of slow down as Christians in an age that wants us to go faster, 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 yeah. to slow down and ask some of these big, hard questions, because that's going to directly inform how we move forward in our digital age. Jason, in your, in your book, you say, if we stop to do some soul searching, we'll find that the desire for meaningful identity and what those identities give us is what these digital platforms are actually exploiting. What do you mean by that? I suspect it ties into what you were just saying, but can you can you tell us a little more on that? Yeah, it very much does. In many ways, when it's it's natural for humans to want to be known. We want to be known. We want to have connections with other people. And I think these are good natural desires. But in a sinful and broken world, we often pursue our identity, whether it's in Christ or our identity uh, in the church. We often seek this kind of self-identity where we kind of shirk our identity outside of us. So it's all about me expressing who I am, my truth, my reality. And social media gives us a platform to make it very me-centered to make our entire life, whether it's through curated things with algorithms and kind of personalized everything. So your Netflix queue is just for you. Your Amazon shopping is just for you. Your social media platform is just for you. It, it feeds us this false reality that the world is really about us, that life is all about us. And in a Christian perspective, when we start to address these things, really, I love this from Cornelius Van Til, and this really is kind of drawing back from like John 3.30, is that we either have a God-centered perspective or we have a man-centered perspective. Those are the two great systems, not only of ethics, but even theology, et cetera. And that's where we live in a modern age that's all about us, about our self-identity, how we want to express ourselves, who our inner reality, what it really is, and having other people affirm that. And social media gives us this opportunity 
to build a platform, to influence people, or to even passively passively observe what other people are doing. So I don't want to say that everyone, especially listening to this podcast, desires to have a big you know, TikTok platform or Instagram platform or big Twitter platform. But in many ways, we're crafting and shaping our identities online to identify with the right people, to identify with the right tribe, to be on the right side of an issue, whether or the right side of history, for example. And I think that when we're talking about as we're pursuing our identity in a digital age, especially in a very polarized age, where these tensions, these divisions have really been played up, where now it's not just that I have my fringe view, but I can connect with people that have my fringe view all around the world. Mm -hmm. And so when you see that kind of playing up that connectivity, it has a lot of benefits, obviously, but there are a lot of drawbacks to it as well. And I think that's why we're starting to see kind of uh, this very polarized, very tribalized, very, in many ways, very toxic public square, and even not just public square out there, but even our communities, even in our homes and churches. I can't tell you how many pastors I've spoken to that said, you know, I don't know how to think about social media in my church whether it's fake news and conspiracy theories to this, this bitter division with my church over seemingly inconsequential things or things that maybe we're, we have differences of opinion on, but the gospel is united us together. We seem to be kind of dividing into these tiny little tribes and uh, kind of polarized factions. And so pastors saying, how do I think about this? And again, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write this book. Uh, was to help us kind of think bigger picture about what is technology? How is it forming and shaping us? And, and then that forming and shaping, it's many ways discipling us. Mm. And I think that's kind of weird for Christians to think because we think, oh, we're disciples of Christ. Yes, we are. But remember what Romans 12, 2 says, Paul is saying there, he says, do not be conformed to the to this world, but to be transformed. Paul is assuming you will be conformed. You are being conformed. You are being discipled to something. Yeah. So we have to be a wise and we have to be aware that we're either going to be conformed to this world or we're going to be conformed to Christ. And yeah. there's that transformation that must take place. And I think as Christians, we need to apply a lot of those principles that we thought about in terms of discipleship to the digital age, because then many ways, this is the way our people are being shaped and formed about the things they see and view and interact with and the people they follow online more so than maybe even the pastor or even sometimes the word of God it, uh, itself. So we need to be aware of that and how we're being formed and shaped. When you talk about being formed and shaped, I suspect you're talking about algorithms. I can't help but notice whatever it is I'm interested in uh, on YouTube or Twitter, all of a sudden it starts feeding me that. If I'm interested in the news about what's going on in Ukraine, or if I'm interested in a certain musician, next thing I know, the feed just gives me more and more of that in which if someone wants to go down that rabbit hole, you really can, which as you say, that has a very powerful forming influence because now, like I said, if it's a good thing that could actually be a positive forming thing, but not always. Right. That's exactly right. And I, I think often when we think of algorithms or we think of AI, our minds kind of go off to these like future sci-fi kind of movie plots. Like we don't think as everyday people that we're interacting with artificial intelligence every day, but we are. And that's the interesting thing is whether it's our smartphones, our smart devices, our smart appliances, even our smart cars, anything that's smart is actually driven by some form of algorithm 
or some form of artificial intelligence. So whether it's Siri on our phones or if it's the social media algorithms that are shaping our feeds and the things that we're exposed to or what's curating our Netflix feed or Amazon, you know, uh, kind of what's up next and things you might like. But lest we think that all of this is bad, I think often we think we hear algorithm and we immediately think, oh, this has to be bad. We need to stop this kind of stuff. Well, there's a lot of benefits to it. One, if you have thousands and thousands of pieces of information, we naturally start to what uh, Alan Jacobs will talk about is lumping. We start to lump things together, even though if they're not exactly the same, they seem alike. So we start to mentally lump them together. Well, algorithms help us to process information as well. They kind of help weed out some of the garbage or the things that we don't, we're probably not going to be interested in. Now, does it do it perfectly? No. But also we have to think that technology isn't just some neutral tool. It's created with by a designer and by a team and often by a company that has a particular goal in mind. Whether you get on Twitter and it says what's happening at the top or what's on your mind, what is that design doing? It's encouraging you to share your thoughts, your opinions on whatever. And sometimes that's good. But sometimes we all know, and I think we've all fallen into this trap of tweeting or doing something where like, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. Or I, you know, in the time I was kind of, I was really emotionally charged and I said something and I kind of regret it now, or we've kind of grown desensitized to it. And it's just kind of our way of life. We think we need to share our unformed opinions and thoughts on everything. Well, so when you combined all of this together with these algorithms, these algorithms we've seen throughout the last few years, some of these algorithms prioritize engagement which main, mainly means the more people engage with something, the more people it will show it to. But it's interesting, though, if it that engagement is built on anger or if that engagement is built on vitriol or kind of being bombastic and over the top, well, guess what? More people see it and more reactions start to pile on. So it's kind of that snowball effect. And so that's one of the reasons I take that chapter on curation or the our curated age is that the things you see online are not just the people you follow. It's not always just the news stories that you like. What we've done is these algorithms in many ways are shaping and forming intentionally what we see and what we're exposed to, which naturally has kind of a discipling effect on us. It, it, it keeps us from seeing the world maybe as it really is and maybe as we want it to be or as the algorithms want it to look like. And so I think, again, that's where we have to take kind of biblical wisdom is to step back, ask some of these big questions and recognize what's really going on. And I think the big question for us in a digital age, are we being conformed to this world? Are our minds being transformed by the renewal of Christ and his gospel and his church uh, to be new creations that we don't see our identity as something we create ourselves it's not about me and my truth and my reality, but it's actually something that's fixed outside of me. That's the beauty of that lo double love command and the great commandment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's focusing on us outside to love God and to love our neighbor as ourself. It's assuming we're going to love ourselves, but it's pushing us outside of ourselves to say truth, reality, and our whole way of life should be focused outside of us so that he may increase and I might decrease, John 3.30. And I think that's something that we have to keep in mind because these technologies are discipling us. They're shaping the way we view the world. We need to be thoughtful and wise about how we approach these things. So with that, Jason, our focus for this year at the Center for Faith and Culture has to do with formation. So Christian formation, human formation, spiritual formation. You've already talked a lot about uh, the role that technology plays in forming us, sometimes in helpful ways, sometimes malforming us in unhelpful ways. 
Um, just talk to pastors, parents, colleagues, friends, just for real quick, one, two, three things that we can bear in mind when it comes to how spiritual formation helps us combat the way that technology might otherwise seek to form us. Yeah, just coming back to Romans 12, too, is are we being conformed to this world or are we being transformed by the renewal of our mind? And so I think that's one of the things is we recognize the ways that technology is subtly and radically altering the way we view the world. A lot of the things that I come down to, I don't give a lot of prescriptions in the book about you have to do X, Y, and Z, and this is going to fit. Well, one, that's not really wisdom. Wisdom isn't just a checklist or a whole bunch of to-dos. It's actually a way of life. And I think often we look for the quick fix. Uh, we look for the overnight kind of success. We're going to implement this and everything's going to be better. But the interesting thing about that is that our bad habits, they didn't form overnight. This isn't kind of like a, a light switch that turned on and all of a sudden we have these bad habits. What? Well, that's not a habit. It's something we, we've cultivated over time. So likewise, cultivating biblical wisdom and a biblical approach to technologies are also going to take a long time. So it's about the small decisions that we make. So maybe it is uh, for me, one of the things that I've done for my personal life, and it's also helped my family life and my spiritual life and my church life and kind of all of life is I limit how much time I can have on social media each day. That little practical thing of putting a time limit on it on my phone, which is pretty ingenious that they've built those right in, uh, has helped out tremendously or having downtime, meaning from about 830 at night, and I'm probably going to change this to make it even earlier, but 830 to 7 a.m., I can't access social media on my phone. Well, I'll tell you, this has revolutionized the way I, not only I do Bible study, not only the way that I do my, my doctoral work, not only the way I do my writing and my research, because what I'm not constantly being drawn to what's on social media, what's on there. I need to, I need to get to it. I have to see this X, Y, and Z. And so I think that's a personal habit that we can help to build. That's going to naturally influence our families. And we can pull a lot of those principles in, but at, at the end of the day, when I'm speaking, especially to pastors, which in the book, I have a whole note to just ministry leaders just leaders in general, uh, especially pastors to say, your people are being shaped and formed by technology, probably a lot more than you realize. Um, churches, when we gather, we may spend uh, throughout the week in terms of personal Bible study and also corporate gatherings, maybe 10 or 12 hours a week if we're really generous. But our smartphones are with us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're often a foot within us at all times, including while we're sleeping. It's the first thing we look at when we wake up. It's the first, last thing we look at when we go to sleep. Naturally, that's going to form us and shape us. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of those practical things of putting in certain limits or certain barriers, creating certain friction points. I think one of the things, at least for me, that's been helpful um, is that I also have a, a group of friends that I often text things to and don't tweet. One, because they will also call me out when I'm wrong and it doesn't kind of ruin everything for me or cause a lot of issues. But at the same respect, I'm growing and learning and they it's we're doing that together. So we often tweet or text things to one another instead of feeling the need to tweet and share them with every, or with everybody around us. Little things like that not only build us as individuals, but also together as the body of Christ, as not only brothers and sisters in Christ, not only the corporate body of Christ coming together as the church. But those are that's where our identity is. It's in God and it's in the church as the body of Christ. And so I think some of those habits have at least been helpful for me as I start to think through not having some rigid list of rules per se, as if that's going to fix everything. But how do I kind of uh, seek to form and be, be formed by Christ and by the gospel to see the whole world kind of uh, revolving around who he is and what he's done and how he's made us in his image? 
Jason, tell us how can people follow you and your work? Yeah, the easiest way to follow me is just jasonthacker.com. So at the website, I have all of the books uh, that I've written. I have a few more that are on the way. This book that I wrote, Following Jesus in a Digital Age, is written for the everyday believer. This is not full of technical jargon. It's not an academic book. This is written for my mother who is very gifted, very smart, but she is not theologically minded. This isn't what she does per se. She's an op- works for an ophthalmologist. She's very good at numbers. Uh, but like, I want this book to be for the everyday person, no matter their vocation, no matter their job. And then uh, on the website there at jasonthacker.com, you'll also see some other resources we have. We have a Bible study version of this coming out later this year, uh, December 1st, as well as an academic volume expounding some of these themes coming out in February. But the whole goal of these projects is to help us think more deeply about technology, how it's forming and shaping us as people. And I do that not only through these book resources, but also have a podcast called The Digital Public Square. And you can find all of that at jasonthacker.com. Jason, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern share what they're reading right now. This is also, Nathaniel, a listener favorite. Today we have Dr. Miguel Echeverria, Associate Professor of New Testament in Greek. So, Dr. Echeverria, what's on your bookshelf? So one of the books I've read recently is Brevard Childs' The Church's Guide uh, for Reading Paul. So Brevard Childs was a... Uh, a biblical scholar, mainly focusing uh, on the Old Testament, taught at Yale for a long time. And as evangelicals, we normally wouldn't read uh, his stuff, but I think Brevard Childs' work uh, provides us a good helpful corrective uh, to how sometimes as evangelicals we tend to think about particular texts without considering their context within a book and also within the larger canon itself. So uh, Brevard Childs was steeped in historical criticism, but he came to the came to the point where he realized that, hey, it's not just uh, what's behind the text, uh, history, who wrote it, uh, background, et cetera, but there's a, a final text, and this final text is found within the context of the canon, and certainly other works like his uh, biblical theology of the Old Testament and New Testament, uh, his canonical introduction of the Old Testament, as well as one of the New Testament as well. Um, they form the foundation for the work. Actually, it's his last book that he wrote, uh, A Church's Guide to Reading Paul. And he makes the argument based on his understanding that, or his thesis, that the order of the books matter. you got a final form to a text, and those particular texts have been placed in a particular canonical order for a reason. We can think, for example, you know, Mark was written first, but why is Matthew before Mark and then Luke and John? If Luke and Acts were part of the same two-volume work, why is John inserted between Luke and Acts, right? There's a particular hermeneutical rhyme and reason for why the church struggled with the organization of books. Uh, And he takes that and he applies it to the Pauline epistles. So, sure, we have Romans, we have, you know, all the Pauline epistles, but and some would argue, well, it's just their order is ma- based mainly off larger books and then smaller books. And that's true, but the order they're in affects meaning, affects interpretation for the Pauline epistles. And his thesis is that Romans, at the beginning of the Pauline corpus, is placed there for a reason. That's where Paul's clearest theology uh, is displayed, which is then applied to particular 
situations in the church, and he uses the pastoral epistles as an example for you. Know, what do you do when you have Pauline's clear, Paul's clear doctrine in Romans, which is later applied to situations uh, where you have false teachers, uh, church structure, uh, ethics, etc., and then that becomes a paradigm for our own churches and how we apply Paul's doctrine, Paul's teaching to uh, situations in modern or contemporary churches, if you will. So I like the book because it causes us to think outside of our usual uh, boundaries for what we read as evangelicals, and it's a helpful corrective that, yes, we do focus on good exegesis of those particular texts, but those particular texts are found within larger books, which themselves are situated in a particular order in the canon for a reason. In the case of the Pauline epistles, Romans is first for a reason. Hermeneutically, it functions so that we see Paul's clear teaching um, and doctrine applied to the churches. Perhaps one of the clearest examples we have is his application of sound doctrine to First and Second Timothy and Titus. The book's title is The Church's Guide for Reading Paul. Thanks again for listening to today's episode of Christ and Culture. If you enjoyed the episode, please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.